Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Pittsburgh. With me is Kent Schmore, visiting instructor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's here to talk to us about Rudolf Carnap's Logische Aufbau. Kent Schmore, welcome. Ah, thank you for having me. So I think a lot of people may not have heard of Rudolf Carnap. He's very well known within philosophy but maybe kind of less well-known to the outside world. So maybe we could just start by talking about who Rudolf Carnap was and uh, what he wrote about. Sure. So uh, Carnap was a German-born philosopher. He was born in 1891. And I'll fast forward to his university career in uh, Jena. So he attended the University of Jena in 1910 and 1914. And he was interested in a number of topics he kind of flirted both with physics and with philosophy. And his initial dissertation proposal, he had trouble finding a natural place for it. So he went to the physics department and they said, this is too philosophical. Go talk to the philosophy department. So he goes down to the philosophy department and says, so they sent me over here, here's my topic. And they sent, they looked at it and it was, that was Bruno Bach at the philosophy departments that looked at it and said, no, this looks like a dissertation to be done in the physics department. Go back to the physics department. Uh, eventually, he was able to hone a topic that he worked on under the supervision of Bruno Bach in the philosophy department uh, in 1920, and the published version of his dissertation was in 1921. And a lot of that dissertation was, not surprisingly, working out how the philosopher and the physicist and the mathematician could all come together in understanding some important achievements early in the 20th century. And from there, his next major work, The Aufbau, published in 1928, although largely written over a number of years leading up to 1928. Right, so the basic idea of The Aufbau is to start with a few basic scientific concepts and to construct all other scientific concepts using just what Carnap would refer to as logic, which is essentially what we would learn as logic in an introductory logic course, plus a little bit of math, really what we would call basic set theory. So logic plus what we would call set theory. Carnap just calls that logic in the tradition of other important philosophers working in his tradition like Bertrand Russell and Gottlob Frege, Frege being one of his teachers. Logic just was what we would call logic plus this bit of math. Using that as the key tool, he would, as it were, construct all other scientific concepts using that logic from these few basic concepts that were the starting point. And the idea would we'd end up with this framework that not only contained every legitimate scientific concept from any respectable scientific field, 
but also would order them in a very particular way. And the way they got ordered would depend on what your purpose is. So, for example, if your purpose was to reconstruct our knowledge of the world, which is the primary purpose that Carnap has in the construction system that he actually begins to lay out in the book, in the work, then you would start with what you might call your epistemic starting point, the starting place in knowledge. Where does all knowledge begin? Carnap looks to the empirical sciences to tell him where that starting point should be, what that basic concept should be. And in his day, uh, something called Gestalt psychology was very popular. And according to that branch of psychology, uh, the starting place of experience was these holistic experiences, not these little like patch of red in my sensory field, but rather this holistic experience that includes colors, sounds, entire visual experience, maybe auditory experience as well. So think of it like a momentary, a holistic momentary stream of experience. He calls that elementary experiences. We start with those and then see if we can, as it were, construct all concepts that play a role in empirical psychology, physics, sociology, and so forth. And so there's also going to have to, as I said, be an ordering there. So we start from our own experience, and then on the basis of our experience, we can, as it were, justify certain claims about physical objects around us, right? So we start off at what he calls the auto-psychological level. This is the level of phenomenal experience or individual experience, so to speak. Although, strictly speaking, he hasn't constructed individuals yet. And then on the basis of that, you know, this is where elementary experiences start. On the basis of that, we, you know, we construct the full realm of individual experience. And from that, we then construct the physical world. And now we can make claims about physical space-time and tables and chairs and so forth that are in physical space-time locations. And then on the basis of that, we can then construct other people at what he calls the heteropsychological level. Right? So, so far at that first auto, you know, auto being just used, the auto-psychological level is the, the level of just one subject. First go to the physical level and then from there to the level where we've got other people that we can then construct. So this is going to be full-blooded empirical psychology. And then once we've got other people, now we, now we can have, you know, we can compare our own subjective reports with each other, right? We get this sort of notion of intersubjectivity in that sense, things that, you know, will be constant across different people's individual streams of experience. And then on the basis of that, then we get to the final level that's outlined in the outbow, the cultural level. And there, so on the basis of, you know, what we learn at the, the heteropsychological level, we can then construct claims about churches and governments and all the kinds of things that would be constructed at the cultural level, right? So in that way, there's not just, you know, getting all of these different concepts in there, but they have to come at the right level and be constructed in the right order. And that order is going to reflect, as it were, the order in which what he calls the epistemic order, right? So something A is epistemically primary to B if a would serve as evidence for justifying B, right? And everything's going to have to fit in its proper place in that order. I see. So, for example, 
the order can't be cultural institutions, then sense experience, then physical objects, then other people's psychological states or something like that, because it's not like it's not like the first thing we ever learn about is cultural institutions. And only then, once we know what's the deal with this or that cultural institution, can we figure out what's the deal with our private sense experience that, you know, clearly doesn't work that way. It's got to work the other way around. You know, we start with these experiences we're having, and then we reconstruct information about third personal stuff happening on the basis of that. That's the reason it has to be ordered. Yeah, so this all starts from our purpose being epistemological, right? So if the point of the construction system is to, you know, the term goes rationally reconstruct knowledge, so not just figure out do children first learn this before they learn that, but to think, okay, so if we were to figure out between two claims, which serves as evidence for the other, the one that's you know, serving as evidence for the other would have to come first. So we need to get that ordering right. If that's what we're trying to capture, then kind of things, this is the way we should proceed for capturing that. Now, there are going to be other construction systems that serve other purposes that Carnap doesn't go into much, as much detail in, but he does consider in briefer form how they might go. So he also considers a construction system that serves not so much the aim of constructing knowledge, but rather starts with a physical basis. Like maybe, and he considers a number of different options here. One would have starting with physical space-time points and certain things occupying them, or he has one that has physical laws, right? And somehow we get from that, that one would start with the physical level being at the basis, right? And then would work up to the other levels. And there, the way he talks about this is somehow we want to figure out how more specialized laws at later levels get subsumed under the more general physical laws, right? You might think of that as somehow as a kind of relationship of maybe material constitution. Like, so these think of cultural objects as ultimately being composed of at bottom like physical stuff, right? So you might think of like the physical level being the stuff we want to look at what composes. You know, churches are composed of people and uh, cathedrals and other buildings, and we want to look at how the physical level composes the stuff at the cultural level or the stuff at the psychological level and so forth. But there. That's going to be a, a different construction system. That levels ordered in different ways, but it's serving a different purpose. Is the crucial point? Yeah. So in the one case, you're saying, "Look, how do I know there's a red ball on the table in front of me?" Well, I know it because I have this experience. You wouldn't say, "How do I know I'm having this experience because there's a red ball on the table?" No, that doesn't even make sense. So that's why my experiences are the more basic thing. If the question we're asking is, "Oh, how do I know something?" Right. But if the question we're asking is what laws govern the thing we're talking about, then maybe we don't want to start with experiences as the basic part of the you know, theory. What we want to start with is what are the things that obey the most general laws there are and how are the more specialized laws derived from those more general laws. And if we're going to do it that way, we want to start with physical objects because the laws that govern physical objects are the most general scientific laws that we know about. And so that's what determines the the starting point in that case. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way of putting it, yes. So yeah, so different purposes are guiding what construction system you're going to construct, what your starting point's going to be, and what the ordering relations are going to be. Maybe we could just give an example of constructing something. So suppose we're going to do the first kind of construction. 
you know, let's say we have a rhinoceros. So that's a physical object. We have my experience of a rhinoceros in the wild. How do we construct the physical rhinoceros out of my experience of a rhinoceros? Or how would Carnap do it? Yeah. So the short answer is Carnap doesn't actually do anything that specific. Certainly not at the physical level. So one of the things that might disappoint you if you're reading the Aufbau and working through the Aufbau is he goes through a lot of constructions at the auto-psychological level. Remember, this is the level of the singular subject. And then when you get to the physical level, things start to get a lot sketchier. Right? So basically what he works up to is, you know, from elementary experiences, he wants to get the different sense modalities. He gets, as it were, color patches. And he gets to like what he calls like these kind of color points that he now wants to map, or even visual points, that he wants to map onto physical space-time points. And there, we started off with much tighter constructions, and there what we end up getting is just 12 basic criteria that we'd want to maximize in figuring out what mapping from color points to physical space-time points we're going to go with. It seems like a very loose way of going from auto-psychological to physical. Uh, it's not even clear that there's going to be a unique way of doing it. There's, like, there's going to be a unique mapping that satisfies those 12 criteria. And then once he gets that, things get even sketchier. Right? And what Carnap says is he wants to make plausible that such a construction system could be accomplished, but he does very little beyond the auto-psychological realm to actually show in detail how it would be done. But there are some important questions there. So that probably doesn't really answer your question, more just explains how little Carnap does to, to, to give you an answer to that kind of question. So yeah, he would get that there are space-time points in which you could construct a rhinoceros. And in principle, you, you could imagine sort of figuring out the rhinoceros would have to occupy certain space-time points at a, you know, in the space-time trajectory. So you could try to, as it were, pick out the points occupied by the rhinoceros in its existence. And each of those points would have, you can imagine, different qualitative points. Right? You're going to say, well, look, in these space-time points, I'm seeing these colors and you know, I'm having other experiences that I'm mapping to each of those points. So there's something like in a really sketchy way you could say there that you know, it's going to be the kind of story you might want to tell here. But that's far from any kind of rigorous construction. But nonetheless, the, so were somebody to come up with such a construction, what we would have would be something like, give me any statement about rhinoceroses, I can turn it into a statement about experiences. And then whenever you ask, how do I know that the rhinoceros, is, whatever, is drinking water, I can say, ah, because saying the rhinoceros is drinking water is just to say I'm having experience XYZ. That's just all it is. And that's how I know. And I know that I'm having experience XYZ. Right. So there's going to be some connection between certain kinds of experiences and certain kinds of you know claims about things in the physical realm that would license serve as evidence for the things in the physical realm right so you, so yeah you could point to these experiences and say that's my evidence for believing that there was a rhinoceros there at time t or whatever 
drinking water. Yeah. So, as you mentioned in the Logische Aufbau, Carnap plays with the idea of having several different kinds of construction, although he only really goes into any detail about the one, namely the one that starts with sense experience. So was it important for him that there were multiple ways of going about this construction, that there were multiple ways, in other words, of defining one kind of thing in terms of another kind of thing? Yes. So I think it's especially important for us interpreting what Carnap was doing to take account of those other construction systems that he is explicit about. So for a long time, I think Carnap was interpreted as a kind of traditional empiricist who starts off with these starting points that are going to be foundational. And in the context of the epistemic system that we get in the Aufbau, right, the starting points are these starting points in experience. So that would make Carnap look like a certain kind of traditional empiricist who says, well, look, we get evidence about the world through experience. That's the foundation of knowledge. And then we build up from there. And as I already said, there's a certain sense in which Carnap grants all of that. But the interesting move that he makes is to say that, look, that's just one possible starting point. There are others. We could have started with a starting point from the point of view of physics and started with the physical level and built out from there. He also talks about a starting point at the heteropsychological level. We could have started with just already bring other people into the picture right from the ground level. That would be a different system. And he's clear that there's no one of those starting points that gets to be more correct than the other. They're rather better suited for different purposes. And he thinks all of these purposes, right, whether you're trying to capture the epistemic ordering or the ordering of more general physical laws subsuming more specialized laws, whatever your purpose is, he thinks all of these different systems are contributing to knowledge in the most general sense. They're all helping us understand some important features of human knowledge, and they're all needed. Um, they're, they're all providing different, as it were, perspectives on human knowledge. So the point of that is to say, well, look, if you read Carnap as this certain stripe of a traditional empiricist who thinks that, look, any way of understanding knowledge has to start with just experience and you know whatever your notion of experience is, that's not Carnap. Right? Carnap thinks that there are other ways, equally correct ways, and equally important ways of reconstructing knowledge. So I guess that makes Carnap rather different from a lot of contemporary philosophers who view this task of defining one kind of thing in terms of another kind of thing as sometimes it's called reduction. So a reduction of one kind of thing to another. One famous case is the reduction of mental states and like feelings and emotions and experiences to brain states or to states of you know this or that neuron assembly, where there are some philosophers who have wanted to argue that, well, there's basically nothing more to you know, mental states than brain states and that these uh, folk terms that we use to talk about like fear and anger and belief and so forth, they'll eventually be superseded by a more sophisticated scientific understanding of how the brain and central nervous system work. But yeah, Carnap actually seems to be doing something a little bit different here than 
what we would call reducing, or or is he? I mean, maybe he isn't doing something different. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. So one might think that he is doing something like reducing when you first read Carnap, because he does talk as though we're supposed to reduce concepts at later levels to concepts at earlier levels. That somehow we're supposed to, as it were, at the end of the day, translate all talk of physical objects, churches, states, other people's bodies into talk of elementary experiences. Though, if you read closely, two things. One is he does loosen up what the connection has to be. So he starts off by talking what philosophers call explicit definition, and that gets loosened up to a definition in use. Uh, and eventually we end up with what's just a set of criteria that would have to be fulfilled. Right? So here's kind of the difference. The difference is, in the one case, you want to, you know, for example, just have term A defines term B, so that every time you see term A, you can just put in term B in there and replace it. Versus, a little bit looser than that, would be not to have, like, where you can just replace A with B, but as or any time you have a sentence with A appearing in it, there's a sentence you can replace that sentence with that doesn't have A appearing in it, it has B appearing in it. But it's a sentence-by-sentence replacement. Versus having a theory and a theory right, where one theory's got talk of color points and the other one has talk of space-time points and you have some mapping between the two theories that shows how to kind of link concepts in the one to concepts in the other, right? That's even looser. So already the point is it's not clear that we're getting a full-out reduction. Like I said, like I take it when people talk about reducing mental states to physical states, somehow eventually we'll just stop talking about psychological states. Any time we talk about a psychological state, we can just pick out the physical state that it really is. Okay, so that's the first point. Second point is that Carnap does talk about this kind of what's called mind-body problem later in the Aufbau. And he gives a rather, to many people it seemed like a dismissive answer to it. He thinks it's a deep answer. So his answer is, well, we can certainly describe things at the psychological level. This for him would be, you know, talking about a single subject, the auto-psychological level and its states. And we can also talk about a subject's brain states, that would be at the physical level. And we can go back and forth between the two levels and correlate claims in the one, at the one level with claims at the other level. And then the question is, you know, have we thereby shown that everything is at bottom physical stuff? Or, I guess in Carnap's sense, is he starting at the auto-psychological level? Is everything at bottom just phenomenal stuff? And Carnap thinks that question can't be captured in the Aufbau, or at least he thinks that if we're engaging in his Aufbau project, we should set aside that question, because that's not the kind of question he thinks can be answered using a purely scientific means. And the project in the Aufbau is to try to see how we can understand all of human knowledge in a scientific way, or at least in a way that the scientist and the scientifically minded philosopher are going to have sympathy with. 
So what he ends up doing is making a distinction between the metaphysical question and the empirical question. Right? And so he says, well, look, if the question is just how does talk of psychological states map up with talk of physical states, there he's happy to show you the relations within the Aufbau of how the, you know, any claim maps up with another claim. Like where in the construction system is the one claim located and where in the construction system is the other claim located and how far away are the, uh, the two to each other uh, and so forth. Right? We can perfectly well, from an empirical standpoint, investigate that. But if the question is, are claims at the one level somehow claims about something more real than claims at another level, then Carnap thinks what you're doing is you're going beyond what can be captured in a construction system. And if you want, you can certainly try to come up with a different construction system that somehow captures what it is you're trying to get at there. But if you can't come up with a construction system right, in the spirit of what Carnap is doing, in which that question could be raised and answered, then what you're doing is going beyond his project and going into metaphysics. So, in some sense, satisfying to the philosopher who's very scientifically minded, probably very disappointing to the philosopher who thinks that they're deep questions not amenable by ordinary scientific methods. So, as we mentioned earlier, rather than going ahead and giving us a fully worked out example of one of these theoretical constructions in the Logische Aufbau, Carnap really just focuses on what it would take to do one of these constructions and talks at a sort of very general level about what their significance would be. And I think this might lead first-time readers to ask, well, you know, what's the point? You know, shouldn't he just do the construction first and ask questions about it later? So what do you think is the big, important upshot of a book like the Aufbau? Yeah, so I think what was driving Carnap in writing this, he was very much concerned with what it is that philosophers ought to be doing. And this goes back to the little story that I gave at the beginning in introducing Carnap. He was trying to figure out what his dissertation topic was going to be, and he found it difficult to figure out, you know, Sort of find a topic that was clearly philosophical as opposed to something that wasn't going to fit into a different field. And this is a common theme throughout his work, is trying to figure out what the philosopher is supposed to be doing. Right? What is it to do philosophy? And how is philosophy related to other sciences? And Carnap has some interesting passages in uh, some of the prefaces. Uh, there's two prefaces to the Aufbau, where he frames some of the larger significance. One of the things that he says is he's disappointed at a lot of, in his day, contemporary philosophy, where he thinks what the philosopher, sometimes he'll call the disappointing philosopher just the metaphysician. That's usually a bad word for Carnap, metaphysics, metaphysician. The philosopher will then sometimes try to construct these broad stroke positions all in one go. And he thinks that we had the situation where one philosopher after another constructs these grand systems, none of which stay up for very long. And then he looks over to the sciences where scientists is much more modest 
in his or her ambitions, willing to just work on a specialized piecemeal problem. And then one by one, they all work together in a much more collaborative way. Rather than you know, one scientist trying to get the unified theory of everything, and another scientist just tries to knock that down and come up with his competing theory of everything, rather you have a situation he thinks is much more promising where each scientist does his little bit to work on a detailed problem, and then collaboratively they all work together right, to slowly build up as it were, you know, the metaphor would go, a structure that is likely to last longer. And he, I think, wants to model philosophy in a similar spirit, in the spirit that he sees going on in the specialized sciences. So a lot of what he's doing is programmatic. He's trying to look, how would philosophical projects proceed if we were proceeding like the scientist does? So... Ideally, if we were working, I guess, in the Carnapian spirit here, in the spirit of the Aufbau, we would have people working on particular constructions, for example, or carrying out different construction systems. And Carnap, I think, is, sees himself in some sense as a kind of visionary, sort of paving the way for a different way of proceeding in philosophy that he thinks will allow us to at least set aside metaphysical questions that are going to impede our progress in understanding human knowledge, right? And get us to just focus, at least for now, on questions that we can make serious progress on using the best scientific tools we have at our disposal. That's what he did. It's much more programmatic. He's trying to... His central question is, what is it to do philosophy? And he's proposing a different vision for how to do philosophy. A vision that models itself on scientific work and looks to set aside those parts of philosophy, which he likes to refer to as metaphysics, that seem to be impeding progress. I think it's an ongoing dispute as to what philosophy is and what its relationship to the sciences is. So certainly one would have to say that Carnap didn't succeed in transforming philosophy into a discipline that is that piecemeal, that modest in its ambitions. But it's an, it raises, I think, more than settling the questions, I think it raises a lot of the interesting questions about what we as philosophers should be doing. Uh, I think one thing that does appeal to a lot of people is that philosophers have something unique to be doing that's at least in some sense, though similar in spirit, to the specialized scientists, at least we've got a, you know, maybe a different set of tools to use. And then we've got other people who think that there's really no important difference between what the philosopher is doing and what the empirical scientist is doing. And in the Aufbau, Carnap seems to be uh, saying, look, there are some very important similarities that he's proposing that are between the philosopher and the empirical scientist. Though I, as I understand Carnap, he doesn't go all the way to saying that the philosopher just is an empirical scientist. I think he still sees some important differences, but he is trying to invite the philosopher to learn from the successes of empirical science. One interesting thing in the picture you just painted is that there seems to be sort of a mixture of big picture stuff and specialized stuff happening 
in this kind of philosophical utopia that Carnap paints. Because on the one hand, there are people working in very specialized sciences, making important discoveries in them. But then there's also this work of kind of bridging different areas via constructions. So there's, you know, there's both work to be done discovering what are the laws that govern cultural institutions versus what are the laws that govern macroscopic physical objects and so on and so forth. But then there is a lot of big picture work also to, to be done in figuring out, well, how are those laws related? And are there correlations that we can make? And are there limits to the correlations we can make and so forth? I mean, I wonder whether some people might say that maybe there's a continuity between the what the philosopher and what the scientist is doing in this picture, and it's kind of a continuum. So maybe at the big picture and the continuum is the work of the philosopher, bridging the insights of the various disciplines. And at the scientific end of the continuum are people making very specialized discoveries or something like that. Yeah, so um, it's clear that Carnap himself is doing both in the Aufbau. He's both doing some detailed constructions, though, as we noted earlier, not nearly as many as you might expect. And then he's also trying to draw some general conclusions about both the constructions that he has done and sort of the rest of the constructions that he thinks he could in principle do, or a group of people maybe in principle could do. And a lot of the sort of general philosophical conclusions towards the end of the Aufbau presume a completed Aufbau a completed construction system. So you're right, there's both things going on. So yeah, so I don't think that Carnap is an enemy to general philosophical work, but I do think that he wants to locate that kind of work. So if you want to make general claims about the you know, relationship between philosophy and the sciences, that's always going to be made within a construction system. Right? So you're going to work within the construction system, the workout, and at least complete enough of a construction system such that you can now look at what's been completed and to try to draw some general conclusions on the basis of that. Uh, so this is what he calls, I think, a general theory of construction theory. Okay? Now, within this theory, you're going to have, for example, the kind of epistemic construction system that he outlines in the Aufbau. There's also going to be these other construction systems Right, so there's also going to be the possibility of, as it were, comparing the different systems. So you can make claims about this system serves this purpose better than that one does. Here's how all the systems fit together. Here are the, you know, some of the relationships between these systems and the different sciences they help serve. Right? These are all going to be claims within construction theory. And I think there's some important questions about the relationship between construction theory and a given construction system that I don't think it fully answered within the Aufbau. But I think that's how Carnap is envisioning things. Ken Schmore, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always... You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Listening.